0: Hello, my beautiful beanies, and welcome to The Bean, the weekend edition. First with yesterday's news, I am Glenn ZB. We're looking back at Sunday and Saturday. Um, it's kind of a weekend. Uh, it was the weekend of the National Party Conference. So um, we'll, we'll find out about that. Uh, Kit Shillow has written a book about modern-day piracy. And uh, we've got uh, a discussion about NBA performance coaching as well. But before any of that interesting stuff... Uh, we've got some other interesting stuff about the Commonwealth Games and what uh, Francesca uh, has thought about you know, watching it all.
1: Many performances have been world-class. Watching Kiwi triathlete Hayden Wilde battle it out with England's Alex Yee was heart-stopping stuff until the helmet kerfuffle, which made it heartbreaking. I assume our cycling team consider the Commonwealth Games a stepping stone towards the Paris Olympics, and they'll be thrilled with their progress. The Com Games, it's also an opportunity for us to appreciate the incredible effort that goes into competing on the world stage by athletes in sports which don't usually get a lot of publicity, so like judo and wrestling and lawn bowls. And then there are the history-making firsts. Hamish Kerr is the first New Zealand men's high-jumping gold medalist. Young athletes, like our 15-year-old neighbour, who's a bit of a whiz at high jump, he sees this kind of success in their dreams and ambitions go to a new level. Kerr has been performing well recently, especially at the Indoor World Champs, but not many new. I hope he enjoys the recognition he's currently receiving. It's easy, it's really easy, to shrug and say, it's only the Commonwealth Games. But very few of us have the talent, tenacity and dedication to be selected to compete for our country, let alone win a Commonwealth Games medal. I think accomplished squash player, former number one and current British Open champion Paul Cole said it best after winning gold this week. This is one of the best moments of my life. Congratulations to all the competitors and thanks for the feel-goods this week.
0: Yeah, I think what I've learned from, uh, because I have to sit here and watch three Sometimes three channels of Commonwealth games at once here at work. And if I hadn't been here, I probably would have completely ignored the whole thing. But you do, it's amazing how you do get caught up in things that you wouldn't. Like, I've never, I don't think I've ever watched a game of squash on TV before, ever. But I did watch Paul Cole's gold medal match the other day. Um, Got wrapped up in that. It's funny what you can get wrapped up in. Uh, What did, what did, I think Jack might have got wrapped up in that one as well. And it's so
2: versatile. In Egypt, each year, they set up courts in front of the Great Pyramid of Giza. You could do that anywhere, couldn't you? I mean, imagine watching Olympic squash on Copacabana Beach or next to Shibuya Crossing in Tokyo. What a spectacle. Sprint, lunge, sweat. For me, the highlight of these Commonwealth Games was seeing New Zealander Paul Cole vanquish his demons of four years ago. The grey-mouth whiz sprinted. He lunged. He sweated. Boy, did he sweat. He gasped. He yelled. He smeared his greasy palm down the back wall to try and get a better grip on his racket. He trailed. He led. He dived. He sprinted. He lunged. He sweated. He endured. And ultimately, he triumphed. Knowing that unlike athletes in many other sports, the squash players at these Comm Games won't have the opportunity to compete at an Olympics made New Zealand's squash success that much more special. The Commonwealth Games? They don't matter, you reckon?
0: Well, no one told Paul Cole. Meanwhile, back here at a big game, politics. Uh, National set out its plan for the the next year or so, leading up to the... Crikey, we've got an election coming up next year, have we? Far out. Anyway, I'm sure they're raring to go. Uh, the National Party president seemed to have wangled his, prog- his way onto our station twice yesterday, in Francesca's show and on the uh, Weekend Collective as well. So I've ignored him. In, in fact, I've ignored all the national people and got better done on instead. Do you think
3: this has been a good conference for the A Nat- Nats, a nice little circuit breaker after a couple of tricky little stories last well- week or so.
4: There haven't been any great controversies emerging from, so that's a good thing. I think it does allow them you know, to stabilise the ship a little bit, uh, and they needed that after the last couple of weeks desperately.
3: So, what do you, where do you make of um, the, the policy announcement that came out about the beneficiaries? Is it, it, it there been some criticisms that you know that we've got much bigger problems to deal with? But of course, it's, it's more than a year to the election, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with those criticisms. I, th- I thought Luxon's speech hit the right notes in terms of setting the big picture and his criticisms of Labour. But then having sort of been on the grand canvas, he got to the very specific with the welfare announcement. And it just didn't seem to fit the, the occasion as far as I was concerned. I can understand that it might play well with National Party supporters who were there. But I would have thought when he's setting the big picture scene, the big announcement should have been one that matched that a very specific one like the welfare policy.
2: How often, Peter, in your time in politics, do you think politicians are guilty of coming up with new ideas for things, unaware that there are already programs that are working and they probably just need more funding?
4: I think that's true. I think they, they, they either need more funding or a little bit of tweaking. I think both parties and gov- both major parties are guilty of assuming that their predecessors were doing nothing and knew nothing and that only they have the others. And I mean, that's been the big problem with the current government a lot of work that was underway was simply dropped because as far as Labour was concerned, nothing was happening. And as a consequence, you would go about reinventing the wheel.
0: Oh, imagine if any of these people were in charge of inventing the wheel. Imagine the committees and the consultation tours. And oh my God, what shape should we go with? I mean, a lot of people are saying round, but there's an argument. I don't know if round's culturally appropriate. Hmm. Anyway, let's leave that there uh, and talk talk to Kit Shalel, who's got a book called Dead in the Water, which is about, uh, I think it's about maritime insurance fraud. It doesn't sound that interesting, but it it turns out it's actually about pirates.
1: Did you ever imagine when you began writing an article about the Brillante Virtuosa, that it would become a story that would fill a book?
3: No, I didn't, to be honest. Uh, It was one of those strange stories that comes along periodically as a journalist, where the more you know, the less you know, um, if that makes sense. You you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into these mysterious events, this oil tanker, you know, fake pirates. And the, the deeper you, you get into the story, the more mysterious it becomes. So, you know, we we spent five or six years looking at this now, and I still think there are things we don't know about this ship uh, and all the criminality that happened around it.
1: Tell me about the Brillante. What kind of tanker was it? Who owned it? Where it was registered?
3: The Berlante was uh, was a pretty bog-standard um, oil tanker. It was quite old, uh, not in the best of conditions, uh, coming to the end of its working life. So it was a bit rusty and smoky and unreliable. And it was owned by a Greek shipping family uh, and a, a guy called Marius Heliopolis. And it was plying its trade, you know, carrying a million barrels of oil from port to port, whether it's from the Middle East to the United States or Uh, In this case, uh, the the journey that we write about in our book, it was carrying oil from Ukraine to China.
0: Yeah, it's high stakes. Um, So is the NBA, of course. Uh, These are some of the highest paid sports people on the planet. Uh, So uh, how do you motivate them then to actually play well? Uh, Maybe Chelsea Lane knows. You're just going about your normal everyday life. You're living in New Zealand when,
2: out of the blue, you get an email from one of the best-known sporting organisations in the world. How did that happen?
5: Look, um, it's interesting that you call them one of the best-known sporting organisations in the world because I had never heard of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you're right, an email did drop into my inbox um, from someone called the Golden State Warriors um, asking if I would consider having a conversation with them about some programming issues they were having um, and and some solutions that they were looking for. Um, My understanding is those connections came through... other people that, that work at that pointy end of sport that we were all um, enjoying at that time, I was obviously at the pointy end for New Zealand, um, but I had come and gone from the States a little bit and done a little bit of contract work over there. And so, yeah, in, in pops this this email and, and I tried to be as polite as I could and I, they hadn't given me a lot of information. So I said, you know, thank you very much for reaching out. I'm quite a busy person. Would you mind <laughs> telling me what exactly your problem is, um, what your goals are? Um, what your vision for the team is and how you think I can help you and they look they don't, they're not people with a lot of time to waste mm. um, they emailed me back and they said why don't you just uh, google that and get back to us
2: <laughs> and you thought oh huh, okay <laughs> so many years ago when Stephen Adams not to make this interview all about me but <laughs> sorry <laughs> when when Stephen Adams was first drafted I was a correspondent in 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 america and so i spent quite a bit of time with him and when he was when he first came into the nba and first started playing in the league and i remember just being on the on the very edge of those organizations and being dazzled at how the whole system worked and i i wonder what your first impressions were of not only how that team operates and how that organization operates but how it works and how it fits in the greater NBA ecosystem? Because it's unlike anything we experience in sport here.
5: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The short answer to that, it was wildly overwhelming. Yeah. Um, because I was very ignorant, Jack. Like, I not, I didn't just not know who the Golden State Warriors were. I knew nothing about the NBA. Nothing. <laughs> um, I'm not a sports fan. Um, yeah. And so it, the first, you know, the first experience was, this is overwhelming. Um, but you're right. The NBA is... Um, it's its own ecosystem.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you thought the All Black Squad was a pressure cooker. I'm Glenn ZB. It's all a matter of scale. Uh, and obviously there is no bigger podcast than this. And I'll be back with this colossus for you again tomorrow. See See you then.